The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts to talk about how to make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits through the practices of love and care. You know, I've featured countless guests on this show, executives, founders, authors, scholars that write and speak and talk about a universal truth that is becoming more common. Business does better with love. And now another book comes along that gives people a powerful love-centered framework for prospering in business. The book is called The Amare Wave, Uplifting Business by Putting Love to Work. And it's written by my guest today, Dr. Moshe Engelberg. This is going to be one of those episodes, like many in the past, where my guest and I are going to provoke your thinking. We're going to challenge your worldview and once again make the business case that putting love to work is not only the right thing to do, it's also profitable. Dr. Moshed Engelberg inspires businesses worldwide to be their best by thinking different, acting courageously, and leading with love. His ideas and approaches are deeply rooted in behavioral science and diverse wisdom traditions, which has been tested and refined through almost three decades of consulting with world-class organizations. And he's also the founder of his own consulting firm, Research Works. He holds a PhD from Stanford University and has published numerous research papers. And as a speaker, Moshe delights audiences with his innovative thinking, open heart, and dry wit. And he now joins us on the Love in Action podcast. Welcome, Moshe. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you, Marcel. Likewise. So we start with a gratitude moment in a time that things are are not looking too good out there in the world. But what makes you smile now as you get up in the morning these days? What makes me smile when I get up is stepping outside to my backyard and hearing the birds chirp and seeing nature and recognizing that life goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, live in a place that birds are chipping all the time because that's La Jolla, which is for those outside of San Diego, it's it's Southern California where the sun is always shining and the the waves are rolling in not too far from you. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're very fortunate to be here and being by the waves is part of what inspired the book. Yes. And speaking of the book, let's talk about that Amare wave. So what's behind the title? Well, the word Amare is Latin for love. And originally the book had a different name and started with make customer love. That was a little provocative. And then making business love and various names. And I realized with the help of a friend of mine who was thinking through the early stages of the book, Gunter Wessels, that sometimes the word love, though it's accurate, can be a hang up for people. So I used the word directly, but wanted to give people an alternative And so he suggested the word amare, again, Latin for love, as something that has some familiarity for many people and has evokes a different feeling and not all the baggage necessarily that the word love 
and the romantic implications evoke. So we use the word Amari. An earlier name was called the Amari Way. And in the book, I spell out a framework of, with principles and practices that constitute the way. And I realize that's a framework, but it doesn't capture the excitement and the energy. And so I'm walking on the beach every day with my dog, Zoe, work thinking about the book, and then I go home and write. Then what conveys the energy? And it takes me like four months to see what's right in front of me, these waves. And I think that is it. It's this wave. There's this wave happening of love and business. So you've been doing your podcast and your work for years, saying the same thing, putting love to work works. Companies make more money, happier employees, better results all the way around. And it makes our world better. Numerous other authors, people you've had on your podcast say the same thing. So what I'm doing in the book, The Amari Wave, is pointing out the pattern and giving it a label, putting it all under this one umbrella I'm calling Amari, and recognizing this momentum and inviting people to catch the wave. Yeah, I love it. It reminds me of a Beach Boy song. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, we all have a journey. We all have a story that leads up to an experience like writing this kind of book. How did you arrive at where you came to the point where I need to write this book. I mean, what was the journey like? Well, there were three forces that converged that led me to write this book. And one came from my almost three decades of consulting where I recognized there was a lot of joy in work for some people, but for some there was not. And I'll never forget a conversation with a, an executive at one company, a very large technology company, who said, Moshe, we hate our customers. And he wasn't being dramatic. And what happened was they made money, but the relationship with the people who gave them money was disdain and distrust and no one liked each other. So it was bizarre. And I realized it's also not uncommon for companies to have negative feelings toward customers. Another client said, this would be so much easier if we just didn't have to deal with our damn customers. So it's understandable. It's hard. Business can be hard and sustaining good relationships. But the conviction he had, we hate our customers, that struck me as both very true and, and terribly sad and unnecessary. And it caused a lot of suffering. So one motivation was reduce that suffering. Yeah. A second one was the language of business, which when I was younger, starting my consulting firm and looking at different options, I was exploring some of the larger management consulting firms, McKinsey, BCG, and so on. And at the time, this was a few years ago, their language was, we hire two kinds of people, hunters and skinners. Hunters bring in the work, they make the kill, the skinners can do the project work. And even at the time, I was in my late 20s, I thought, it's kind of weird, that language. These are people who are, we're serving, who are paying us, and we're considering them kill. And I realized it wasn't, uh, that language too wasn't uncommon. That predatory, violent language is not uncommon in business. It's pretty pervasive, in fact. And then I kind of forgot about it and got caught up in the mainstream and used that myself, telling clients, we'll help you capture more market share. This notion of subduing, bending customers to our will. And then I reached a point in life where I, I said, I'm not going to talk that way. That's not okay because language is very powerful and allows us to do things. If we let that language be, then that lets certain behaviors be that aren't healthy. And we see that in our world right now with all the social unrest and the protest over, for example, the murder of George Floyd and so on. 
So the, the language matters. I was part two. And third has been my own spiritual journey. I've been meditating for many, many years and on this path and realized that there's so much commonality to us in this unity and we're all part of a greater whole. That's my belief. And a way to bring that together is, is with love. So the antidote to all of these problems seem to be love, which I define very simply as energy that uplifts and connects. Mm. So let's, let's bring this back to language because, you know, that's a big part of how you start your book and how you, you describe it like we confuse business with war. And then you use some examples capturing market share. And what's the one with the customers? How the language is it was very violent, how we talk about our customers. What was the example that you used? Yeah, we conquer markets, we crush competition, we capture customers. There you go. And so, and we almost speak like this subconsciously. It's just in our business vernacular without us even knowing it. So how is this really doing more damage than good? I mean, can you cite some examples? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's part of this practice of dehumanizing. And it happens in smaller ways when we reduce customers to a data point. Now, it's necessary to understand data and aggregate things and look at numbers and so on. But it's not necessary to conceive of customers simply as a single number, a dehumanized entity. And the same happens with this language. So we hear, what was it, the rivalry between Apple and Google. And at one time, the late Steve Jobs used, what were the words used for Google? It was beyond crush and conquer. It was essentially eliminate, eviscerate them. We hear this and that... You can imagine what that does in a workplace where if the leader is saying, let's eliminate them, let's kill them to about their competition, what does that tell people? It means do anything you have to do to get rid of the competition. Everything is fair game, no holds barred. And that results in a lot of the really bad behavior we see. I cite examples in my book. There's the Theranos example a couple years ago of a company built on a fabrication and growing and growing and expanding out of that. And then it all collapsed because there was nothing to it. Wells Fargo has been in the news many times, unfortunately, for bad behavior. And it, it's recurred. There's been several cycles of it. Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica example. It's when we lose sight of why we're in business and say business is war. We'll do whatever it takes to win. And we want to kill. Mm. Yeah. And then there's the Kevin O'Leary example, uh, Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank, right? Where he's actually talking, I believe. He's using the word killing. He is. He is. I have a quote. I don't remember the exact words, but um, it's a quote where he basically says, we want to kill our competitors. I want them to fear me. And he exemplifies that in the show. That's his way of being. And he's made a lot of money. It makes the point, too, that this love-based approach that we both advocate, Marcel, is not necessary to make money. We see a lot of examples of companies and individuals making a whole lot of money and being warlike and greedy. The movie The Wolf of Wall Street was based on that, but it also showed the price that he paid with his humanity and his misery. So if all someone wants to do is make a lot of money, they don't need to put love to work. If someone wants to be happy and make money and make the world better, and serve a greater good, 
that involves putting love to work. Mm -hmm. This is so good for me as well as I teach, coach, speak about a more a way for us to express and move towards a more Amari language in business. Do you have any examples of how we can shift from a business as war language to business as love language? And so we can start to literally create new neural pathways in the brain to start speaking out of love instead of, you know, violence and war. Yes. I write a newsletter called Amari Wave Wednesday. And the idea is let's, we have Cyber Monday, we have all kinds of days that are about consuming. Let's make one day a week a day we're committed to putting love to work. And I challenge people in business to do one thing to uplift others and put love to work. And the last issue was exactly about language. And I cited the example of SSM Health. It's a Catholic healthcare system. And the leader there, okay, yeah, Sister Mary Jean Ryan. And she recognized that in their healthcare system, they treat victims of violence. So how could they possibly use language that promotes what they're trying to heal? And she said, each day, those of us in healthcare tend to the victims of violence in our hospitals and emergency rooms. Most certainly the violence will not end until we each take responsibility for promoting nonviolence in our personal lives and our communities. And so she she put policies in place to ban the use of language that gratuitously supported violence. So some were large, some were small. So instead of saying we capture markets, they would say we secure markets. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying target audiences, they would say intended audience. Take a stab at the cane, give it a try. Their PowerPoints, they didn't use bullet points, they used information points or dot points. So once we become aware of the language, we'll see it all over the place. And there are substitutions. The key is to substitute words that also have power and energy and motivation behind them. So those are some small examples that can make a big difference. Mm, I love that. Thanks for those. So let's get into the practice of love at work and talk about how companies can actually do this. So I want to get into that chapter in your book where you break it down into the, the seven principles that you call the Amari philosophy, a philosophy of love. Can you unpack them for us? Sure. There's seven principles. Treat one another well. That's the starting point, the golden rule. Inspire connection. Get on purpose. And that has to do with having a higher and a shared purpose. Respect money. So not at all saying money is evil or money is unnecessary. Money is good. The more we have of it, the better, because we can do good with it. It's just having the right relationship with money. Choosing love over fear. Taking the long view, looking long-term, and ultimately prioritizing relationships. So I'll drill down a little bit into prioritizing relationships. Fundamentally, businesses can either be transactional or relationship-based. And... I'll give a personal example. A grocery store chain you might be familiar with, it's in a lot of places in this country, is Trader Joe's. Yeah. They sell four to six times more per square foot than most grocery stores. And I'm a big fan. I admit that, an aficionado. And when I walk into Trader Joe's, I feel a little bit uplifted. And I feel a sense of connection. Yeah, this is my kind of place. And that's, again, that's how I define love. Energy that uplifts and connects. So when I walk into Trader Joe's, I feel that energy. If I ask people, where's the peanut butter? 
if I ask someone stocking a shelf, where they'll stop what they're doing, walk over around the corner to another aisle, and take me to the peanut butter. And it's not a bother. It, it seems like a privilege. And they're happy to do it. And that's sincere. And it's baked into their training. So when we prioritize relationships, we say that comes first. As opposed to when I go into other, some of the large supermarket chains in, in my area, Vons and Ralph's, they're not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. And sometimes there's people who are uplifting, but my typical experience is it's kind of emotionally flat. It's more transactional. And to me, life is too short to engage in transactions when it could be about building relationships. So I choose to give my business to organizations that want to uplift me and feel my support in return. I want to give them my money. I want to help them succeed. So prioritize relationships kind of brings it all together. The notion of treating each other well, inspiring connection, getting on purpose, and so on. Yeah, I want to dig into principle number five. Five is choose love over fear. So what does choosing love over fear actually look like in practice? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question and a tough one because we all know what the words mean and we have kind of an idea, but what does it look like when people do it? Well, the starting point is tuning in. The signals for love over fear come inside us. When we are operating out of fear, we feel constricted tighter. So as I'm saying this, I'm pulling my hands together and I feel it tightening in my body. And we all know what that fear is like. feels like fear tightens us up. It diminishes us and it narrows the realm of possibilities. In a survival situation, that's good because we're focused on that tiger on the savanna who might attack and kill us. But in our lives, we don't face tigers on the savanna. We don't need fear very often or arguably even at all. There's other ways to be motivated. And love feels expansive. We all know that feeling too. There's an openness and we see new possibilities and the leaves on the trees are greener and that we notice the people around us and see smiles and so on. So there's an openness. So it's the feeling in our bodies and the attitudes and behaviors it creates. It shows up in business in the decisions we have. So am I operating in fear? Am I limited? Am I afraid? Am I engaging in fighting energy? Like the examples we used around language, those all come from fear that if we don't do this, someone's going to take our share and they're going to wipe us out as opposed to a mindset of abundance. There's plenty. And if we are fulfilling our higher purpose, we're good. We're good to go. And love can fuel that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So speak to leaders that are listening to the show. And that's the majority of people listening. What would you say is our deepest fear as leaders? Our deepest fear for many is high success. And I know that sounds paradoxical, maybe even provocative. And what I mean by that is a lot of leaders hold themselves back from using their superpowers, what Gay Hendricks called the zone of genius. And, and we're afraid of that success of showing up as best we can of being in that zone and that energy in that space where where things just flow. We all have those moments of it, but it's living in it. And some of it is because ultimately deep down inside, we feel we don't deserve this or mm. something's wrong, or I don't want to outshine other people. Whatever it is, there's all kinds of obstacles that hold us back. 
So fundamentally, one thing that gets in the way is ironically this fear of our best success. A second one is not being awake to the paradigm we're in. It's kind of like a fish is in water. It doesn't know it's in water. It just is. But as human beings, we have the capacity to see what we're in. So if leaders wake up and see, we operate in this paradigm of war. Am I going to do that with full awareness and be conscious of it? Am I going to choose that path? I can't ignore it anymore. Kind of like these protests are waking us up to the racism that's been so prevalent in our country for so long and not yet another wake-up call, this one seems to be sticking more. So once we're woken up, then it's a conscious choice. We can't say, uh, I wasn't aware of it. So I want business leaders to know you have a choice. You can choose this war paradigm or be simply transactional, or you can choose to put love to work. It's not easy, but the rewards are immense. Yeah. Well, let me take the principle number seven, which is prioritize relationships, which you say that it's the glue that holds all of the others together. And it sounds simplistic and logical. Of course, we have to prioritize relationships, right, with our employees, customers, stakeholders for good business to happen. Sounds commonsensical, but it's not common practice because we have a lot of shortcomings and we make mistakes that we're not aware of that may sever business relationships. Talk to us through some of those hangups or shortcomings that are holding us back. How can we flip that around? Well, one of the things that holds us back is where we put money before relationships. And it's so easy to do and so tempting and so seemingly justifiable in our society and in business culture. So when we put money first, we say making as much money as we can, as quickly as we can, is more important than uplifting people and providing connection. And often it's a focus on the short term. I can't tell you, Marcel, how many clients I've worked with who say we want to do the right things, but we're held accountable for hitting our numbers this month or this quarter, this year. So we'll discount things, we'll deceive people, we'll make promises we can't keep in order to hit our numbers. And there's a knowing that that's wrong and a disdain for the practice, but a willingness to do it because, well, that's what companies do. So there's a quote by Plato, what is honored in a company is cultivated there. So if business leaders say through their words or their actions or their priorities that their decisions show, money is first, then that's where the work will go. And that will put relationships in the back seat. Hmm. Okay. So here's an interesting follow-up question to that. You mentioned that you've had several instances where clients come to you and tell you, well, you know, we're under pressure. I, I wish we could do this Amari philosophy and put love to work, but uh, we got to meet our quarterly numbers. So I almost hear that as an echo that is resonating with my listeners right now because a lot of them feel like their hands are tied because of internal pressure or external pressures about meeting demand and meeting the numbers, et cetera. So when you hear somebody come to you and say, yeah, I wish we could uh, put this into play, this love practice into play, but we got to meet our numbers. What do you tell them? Well, first I say, you're in a tough position. It's hard because you have this expectation and that has been going on maybe for years. 
And so how do you stand up to that? How do you disturb that? What if it affects your end of year bonus? What if it affects your job security? What are you going to do? What if the board will want to kick you off because you're not leading the way they want to be led? So it's looking at what is and accepting that reality. And in some business cultures, it means making change very slow. So on a 10-point scale, I would say, where are you? And if they'd say, well, we're, we're at a two, we're pretty bad, they'd say, well, let's talk about getting to a three. What one thing can you do that could get you closer to a three? Well, we can change our bonus structure so it's not 100% on quarterly sales, but it's 75% on quarterly sales and 25% on something else. So that's a small example of one change that can be made that moves in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. We can point out at a board meeting the discrepancy between our stated values, integrity, teamwork, putting the customer first, and our behaviors, and just bring that up so it's shining a light on it so people can talk about it. So those are just a couple of things people can do while acknowledging it's difficult. And at some point down the road, if nothing works, then every individual, every business leader needs to make the choice if it's against their values. Am I willing to compromise my values in order to stay here and make the money I do? Mm. You also suggest that the seven principles, the Amari philosophy, that they can't be acted on unless you have three pillars in place. I love these pillars because I, I mean, I preach them. Let's kind of uncover it. They are authenticity, belonging, and collaboration. So these three pillars is what's going to drive those principles in action. Give us a brief understanding of the importance of these three attributes, authenticity, belonging, and collaboration. Sure, sure. I'll give a little more detail about what they are and why I believe they're so important. So authenticity is about being who you are, showing up whole, and doing what you say you're going to do. What authenticity does is it builds trust. So I'll go back to the Trader Joe's example. When I go in the store and I'm interacting with people who work there, it feels authentic to me. And we can all recognize when someone's faking it. And that's a way to learn a new behavior, fake it till you make it. But in a sustained way, it doesn't work. It's a training tool. So when customers interact with our businesses, customers are smart. They'll know this is real or this is BS. They're just saying these words to look good. It's paint, basically, or makeup. So authenticity builds trust, and trust engenders all kinds of things. If there's trust, it means, oh, this company wants to do right by me. So I don't have to question every single price. I don't have to look at this, the guarantee. I I can presume, because there's trust built over time and it's been reinforced, I presume they have my best interests in mind. That's part of having a shared purpose. Once trust is in place, it's a foundational piece for creating a sense of belonging. And in belonging, there's a shared identification. And Marcel, this is so powerful. It's the idea of, so for example, I'll circle back to Trader Joe's, or I could use USAA or Costco or Patagonia. There's a host of examples in the book and that we all experience in life. So when I'm Talking about Trader Joe's, I'm melding my personal identity with that of a brand. I'm saying, I'm a Trader Joe's kind of person. To a brand, that is gold. That's what they want. They want people to say, you 
are part of us, for customers to feel we belong together. That's this sense of belonging. And then people are proud to wear T-shirts and hats and all kinds of things and tell their friends and be ambassadors, what Ken Blanchard calls a raving fans. Yeah. Because it's a part of me. I want to share this good part of me. So that's the B, belonging. So authenticity builds trust, creates a platform for a sense of shared identity and belonging, and that creates collaboration. And I have a broad view of collaboration. Every time a customer gives your business money, that's an act of collaboration. If you prioritize relationships, that's an act of collaboration. Otherwise, it's a simple transaction from customer number 694X. But if you think from this ABC lens, authenticity, belonging, collaboration, they're choosing to give you money. They're saying, I want you to succeed. So collaboration can be very expansive and it involves co-creating solutions, new products, together with customers, together with partners, with suppliers, with all your stakeholders. It involves looking at employees as collaborators and not just having nice sounding but empty think tank collaboration sessions where you can check off a box and said, okay, we had collaboration sessions once a quarter. It's doing it meaningfully on an everyday basis where there's an openness to new ideas, where the, the good ideas and solutions can come from anywhere. So that kind of collaboration requires putting our egos aside and saying everyone has something significant to contribute. Let's invite it and value it. So what you're saying is that everything starts with authenticity to build trust for those two things to happen. Feel like you belong, which then leads to more collaboration. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Give us an example, one more, because I, I don't want to hop off the, your three pillars yet because people misperceive and they have misconceptions about the word authenticity. It's tossed around in business lingo, but people don't really know what it is. And sometimes it's so overused that it's just a buzz term. You know, there's no value in the word because it's so overused. In your own experience, what is authenticity? The simplest way I can put it is being you and being true to your values and beliefs. And it shows up when there's alignment, when what you believe and what you say and what you do all match. Mm. Mm. So it ties into your higher purpose and it also ties into the higher purpose of the company. It speaks to your values. So it's all aligned. And when things are aligned where your values align with the values of the company, you operate out of your authentic self. Is that a good way of saying it? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Fun. All right. Good. I love bottom line questions. So I'm going to toss you a bottom line question. <laughs> Here it is. Does love at work make us more money? Yes. Bottom line answer is yes. There's a lot of evidence I cite in the book, for example, from Raj Sisodian companies reported in his, their book, Firms of Endearment. And they showed an 8x return compared to the S&P over 10 years for companies that are on this path. Now, they didn't call it Amari and they didn't, they use the word love sometimes, but they had a slightly different framework, but same idea. And again, there's a lot of people espousing this and there's different labels. There's conscious capitalism, servant leadership, 
doing well by doing good. There's various labels, but underneath it, it's the same basic ideas that are expressed in the principles. We tied seven principles we mentioned earlier. And so that work that was based on the Strong Research Foundation, again, showed that the 8x return over 10 years from the companies that do these kinds of practice compared with those that don't. In my book, I cite a lot of other companies, some I mentioned a few minutes ago, Costco and REI and Patagonia and Tom's and USAA and Southwest Airlines. It's started to put love to work almost five decades ago. Been profitable every single year. All those examples are ones where they make significantly more money than their competitors. So the bottom line yeah. answer, yes, doing this with the right essentials in place. So you need good products or services. You need good people. You need sufficient capital. You need the right value proposition, a good business model. All those things need to be in place. With that, in the wrapped within this idea of amare or love, really sets you apart and helps you make more money, sometimes a lot more money. Mm, mm. Yeah, I uh, did my own research a few years ago and I took the 100 companies, best companies to work for that's released in the Fortune Magazine issue, right? And I was able to determine by analysis that one third of those company would actually qualify as the having a Mare philosophy type of a work environment or culture. And they're all very profitable companies. So, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. You just have to go and look for the evidence. It's out there. So, I'm going to speak on behalf of the voice of my listeners right now because I get this a lot. I get it when I speak on stage and people come up to me afterwards. I get it when I, um, you know, do group coaching, et cetera. And, and that is that people will say that I believe in this way of leading and doing business and I, I want to rally others around this idea, but I got the doubters and detractors that don't believe in this and they oppose me. And I know that that's what some of my listeners are thinking right now. So how do we deal with those detractors, those doubters that are throwing stumbling blocks in our, in our path and keeping us from trying, you know, bringing this philosophy to life? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Marcel, and a very pragmatic one. I'm glad you asked that. Well, there's a few different perspectives I'd like to bring together. One is sometimes the doubters and detractors, what they're saying is, we don't want to change. So it's not necessarily about the idea of love or whatever's on the table. It's you want to do things differently. You want to shake things up. We don't want change. So in our world right now, on a societal level, we're experiencing that big time. There's big shifts happening and a lot of forces saying we got to change. And there's also a lot of resistance to change. That ties into this idea I talk about in my book called the status quo bias. So as human beings, we tend to feel more comfortable with what we know, even if it doesn't work. So there's a lot of tools to help people get past the status quo and move into change, even though it's uncomfortable. And one part is simply acknowledging the discomfort. So for business leaders, one of the most powerful tools is simply acknowledgement, saying, I know this makes you really uncomfortable, and I can see why. This would really shake things up. So that's step one is the honest, is where authenticity comes in, the authentic acknowledgement. And then from there, if resistance to change is the problem, it's saying, okay, well, let's do this thought experiment. So we'll borrow from Einstein's toolkit of, of experimenting in thought. 
and saying, imagine we changed to the point where 85% of our customers would say, yeah, we love that company. We want to give them our business. Would that make it worthwhile? And people say, well, yeah, I guess so. That would make us a lot more money. It would make our lives easier. So it's skipping ahead to an endpoint that everyone agrees on. And so that takes me to another very simple way of dealing with detractors and doubters is by asking really simple questions. One is, would you say we love our customers? And again, not getting hung up on the word love. They could, people can use other words, care about, whatever. But I like to be direct. Say, would you say we love our customers? And the companies that do, it's clear, it's an immediate yes. Those that don't are in the middle. Well, we try or no, we don't care about that. This is business. What's love got to do with business? Then it's, well, do our customers love us? Because we know if they do, they'll come back, they'll give us repeat business, they'll tell others, and we'll grow. Do customers love us? Well, I don't know. Well, let's find out. Let's do some research and ask them. And that brings out, is there alignment between what we want and our purpose and their purpose? And it sets the stage for starting where there's a shared objective, which is it would be better if our customers said we love them because they'll bring us more business. They'll help us grow. So those are a couple of things. Yeah. Yeah. We have tradition here on the show. And so I'm going to circle back to fear, but this time fear from a leadership management standpoint. Why do you think people in high purchase still lead through an intimidation when we know love and care lead to business outcomes? Well, number one is it's what they know. It's how they were trained. And this builds on the Milton Friedman philosophy from about 50 years ago that was interpreted to mean put shareholder return first. Mm. It's based on an I believe, a misinterpretation of Darwin's survival of the fittest. Where He basically, in his second book, he said, it's better when people work together and collaborate because that gets better results and sustains the species longer. But that's not what we focus on. We misinterpret and overextend one of his tenets. So there's a lot of things that lead us to do what we know. Business schools train people in this. It's about crushing the competition, get out ahead. So it's what people know, that's what they fall back on. And that's what the culture supports. So that's the main reason I think it's in place. And to your point, Marcel, is people also know that love is better. Love makes business better. That's what you said at the beginning of the show. That's what you say every week. And it's true. And ironically, as human beings, or maybe this is what makes us human uniquely, we have the capacity to hold opposing truths. So we can know one thing, we can know another thing, and just stick on one side. And that's what happens here. So the more people who, your listeners, hear this message and have the courage to step into it and say, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do one small thing today to put love to work. I'm going to have this conversation. I'm going to change my thinking. I'm going to express gratitude. Whatever it is, sometimes the behaviors come first. So rather than change a long-standing attitude, let the actions change and the consequences of that will lead to shifting attitudes. Yeah, yeah. This is a gigantic vehicle to turn around because this is a organizational systemic issue that has roots that run throughout history up to today. And so to me, 
I keep seeing the behaviors of fear and intimidation and scarcity being rewarded at the leadership ranks. And so we're caught in this vicious cycle where until we stop rewarding the behaviors, and that takes a complete shift at 180, now we can talk about what are the leadership behaviors that lead to a high-performing organization. That leads to your pillars, authenticity, belonging, collaboration, right? I mean, I'm hopeful. I really am. I'm hopeful, but it's going to take a, it may not happen in my lifetime, Moshe, I'm just saying, but I hope it does. But we have to stop rewarding the very behaviors that are causing organizations to suffer. And you know, there's a lot of suffering out there right now. There sure is. And that's fundamentally why I wrote this book is to reduce suffering and help people make their lives a little bit better through business. And you're right, it's tough and it it takes that turn. The good news is we are seeing the gift of this pandemic, which has caused a whole lot of pain and suffering in its wake. The gift of it is it wakes us up to the reality that big change can happen really quickly. If that's our will and we have a shared common vision, we can all be staying home for months at a time. We can totally change our lifestyles. Business can do a 180. Look at all the businesses that are operating virtually now that before thought there's no way we can do it. And some like Facebook are saying, we're going to keep it this way. So we can make big shifts quickly if the will is there. That gives me hope and keeps us going. And we're at a time in our lives and in society where there's a whole lot of things shifting. And that requires some letting go, some surrendering, some even destruction. We need to let go of things that didn't work. If things are broken, they're broken. Let them be broken and make space for something new and better. That's what this wave, this Amari wave is all about. Yeah. And to end the suffering or at least stop or lessen the suffering, you're going to bring in people that have the capacity to do that. And those are the leaders that we were talking about. And this is what your whole book is about. So, yeah, so I am hopeful that we're in the right path for sure. So we end our episode uh, with two final questions. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? Right now, what's tugging at my heart is this idea of transformation. And I feel, I was telling my wife, I feel this churning inside It's not just about me. It's about what's going on in our world right now. And a lot of us are feeling it. So again, on a lot of levels from a lot of places, we have a wake-up call and we're seeing new possibilities. And to me, that's exciting. It can be a little bit scary. Mostly it's stepping into that and saying, we're going to make our future different and better. Mm -hmm. And I want to give you the chance to close us out your way with that one thing that your most important takeaway that we can take with us. To me, the most important takeaway is we all thrive with love and we express love in different ways for sports teams. I love the Golden State Warriors. I love the Steelers. I love so business leaders like many of your listeners will for sure have that kind of connection. And we can carry that over. It's okay for love, whatever you call it, amare, call it grilled cheese, doesn't matter. But recognize it belongs in business and will make you happier and make you a lot more money. The book is called The Amare Wave, Uplifting Business by Putting Love to Work. 
And Moshe, if people want to get a hold of you and connect with you, how can they do that? They can reach me by email, Moshe at theamarewave.com. Amare's A-M-A-R-E. Moshe at theamarewave.com. Reach me through LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, the usual channels, and I'll get back to you. It's always a blast to talk to another kindred soul. Appreciate your time today. So good being with you, Marcel, and I appreciate all you do. My special thanks to Moshe for spreading the love and helping us to see that love belongs in our workplaces and in our businesses. If this episode resonated with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of the Love in Action podcast, you can hit me up on my website at marcelschwantes.com. Let's talk. Finally, don't forget, Love in Action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it and be convinced. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.